Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show for the weekend of March 20th to March 22nd, 2020. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. So hope everyone out there is coping well with coronavirus and uh, self-isolation quarantine. Following up last week's news of most major wide releases being pushed back to at least June, if not further, um, all of the major exhibitor chains have actually confirmed they are closed down until further notice in order to comply with CDC recommendations that non-essential businesses cease operation for the time being. This, of course, means that there are no top five numbers to report this week. Different parts of the box office community are responding in various ways. Uh, my favorite being that the box office subreddit temporarily has suspended their no memes rule. So go have fun with that while it lasts. One of the more interesting bits of news that I've, co- that I've come across this week is that various films that either just came out in theaters or would have come out have been added to video on demand or streaming ahead of schedule. Uh, specifically, we mentioned Star Wars Rise of Skywalker went on VOD uh, three days early. Frozen 2 came to Disney Plus streaming on March 15th, uh, three months earlier than scheduled. Onward, the Pixar film, um, came to VOD March 20th um, and will be coming to Disney Plus April 3rd, which is early. Um, In addition, Universal has The Hunt, Invisible Man, and Emma coming out on March 20th. Um, The films Bloodshot, Birds of Prey, Just Mercy, The Way Back, The Gentleman uh, are all coming out on March 24th on VOD. I Still Believe, the Christian film, is coming out March 27th to VOD. And finally, Trolls World Tour is coming straight to VOD on April 10th. Uh, This is the same day it would have come out in theaters if there were any still open. Uh, In addition, the rom-com The Lovebirds, starring Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani, has been picked up by Netflix for streaming at a later date. Uh, It was originally to come out um, uh, in the coming weekend, April 3rd. Uh, obviously, we'll see whether other films that haven't officially moved back their release schedule. I think at this point, uh, it's only My Spy, Scoob, SpongeBob, and Artemis Fowl uh, between now and, and May that haven't confirmed if they're going to to delay back. Uh, we'll see any any of them end up following this move to streaming first. Um, so this has raised actually a lot of speculation from people, um, especially people who aren't as familiar with the box office, whether or not studios would do this for their big theatrical releases coming up. The ones I see most often are A Quiet Place 2, originally from March 20th, Mulan, March 27th, New Mutants, originally April 3rd, and Black Widow, originally May 1st. Um, I also see some speculation for Wonder Woman uh, coming out June 5th, if it'll come to streaming. Though, as far as we know, Warner Bros. has confirmed that they will not be moving it to streaming early, and they still plan on having it released on June 5th, of course, pending uh, any further developments with COVID-19. Personally, I think all this speculation is actually a really good teachable moment that I'll use for this week's box office concept to explain what the idea of a theatrical window is and why it's important to both exhibitors and distributors. Uh, before we get into that, though, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more in detail in another episode. But when I say that this podcast keeps watch on how much money movies make are making and why, really, what I mean is the movies aren't making money. Companies that are involved in movie production, distribution, and exhibition are the ones making the movie. Uh, production refers to companies that are actually involved in writing, shooting, and editing films. Exhibition refers to movie theaters that you go to to watch the movie when it premieres before it comes to home release. And distribution acts as the middleman between the two, handling marketing, press, negotiating licensing rights and agreements with the exhibitors, as well as managing the film's distribution after it's in theaters, on services for streaming or digital rental or physical purchase. 
without getting into a super huge history lesson in this episode, suffice it to say that the big five major film studios, Disney, Sony, Columbia, uh, Paramount, Warner, and Universal, act as both producers and distributors. Occasionally, they or a smaller distributor company will work with independent production companies to distribute films um, that those indie producers make. Uh, A good example, one of my favorites, is that Sony helped distribute the film uh, Searching from 2018 that was produced by Sev Ohanian and Nis Chagnati. Ohanian and Chagnati made the film for less than a million dollars, you know, invested from their friends and families, um, and they were paid five million for the distribution rights by Sony. So they made about a four million dollar profit uh, on that project, and then Sony turned that five dollar investment around into a seventy-five million dollar run at the box office. So that's how you know the example where the producer Ohanian Chagnati worked with one of the distributors, in this case Sony, to exhibit the film. Um, so you know, however, you know, despite uh, despite this, and again, like I mentioned, uh, Sony handles not, not only helps independent producers; they also work with their own uh, production projects alongside the distribution. Uh, however, despite this integration of production and distribution, at least within the big five studios, um, they were basically prohibited from managing their own movie theater chains as a result of antitrust lawsuits filed in the '40s and the '50s, the so-called golden age of Hollywood. Uh, back then, this was common, and you'd see things like MGM producing a film, uh, say, with one of their actors, Clark Gable, uh, who they had under an exclusive contract, and then they would distribute their film um, that they had produced into their own and operated MGM Lowe's theaters at very favorable favorable terms while making it uh, pretty expensive for other theaters to show their films. So that they inserted, if you wanted to see your favorite actor, Clark Gable, you would need to do so at an MGM theater, especially since they had a lot of actors under contract um, to work only with them. A modern-day equivalent would be if Disney had their own uh, movie chain, chain uh, let's call it you know, House of Mouse, and made it so that if you wanted to see the newest Pixar film, the newest Marvel film, or the newest Star Wars films, you'd have to do so at the House of Mouse, and you couldn't go to AMC or Cinemark or Regal or Alamo Draft House to see it. Um, and if you did, maybe they'd charge those theaters an uh, exorbitantly high sewing fee. Um, we'll get into all those in future and what those terms mean in future episodes, um, basically making use of that, you know, they essentially had a monopoly on sewing where these films would, uh, though these exclusive high demand films would show up. Um, however, because of these antitrust regulations, um, you have producers slash distributors on one side and exhibitors, the AMCs, Regals, and Cinemarks of the Worlds on the other side. So now that we have the, those company categorizations of producer, distributor, and exhibitor in place, and we know to treat producers and distributors as functionally as one unit, um, you know, let's imagine what the lifetime of a film in the world without coronavirus would be like. Um, as an example, let's look at the historical run of Captain Marvel, um, which came out uh, this month last year. Um, so, you know, as you would expect, a film would normally be released in theaters. Captain Marvel, for example, came out March 8th of last year and premiered to over $150 million domestically in its opening weekend. Uh, it stayed in theaters until July 4th for a total of 17, 18 weeks uh, with pretty decent drops, allowing it to hang on, um, you know, in over 1,500 theaters when it opened to, you know, 4,000 plus theaters opening weekend. It stayed in over 1,500 theaters for 10 weeks or so. Um, that would been about May 17th or so. Um, so, you know, stayed total seven, 17 weeks. The first 10 weeks, it was fairly wide released. Um, 
it became available for digital download. So this is when you can rent or buy it uh, on on demand services such as YouTube Movies or Amazon Video or iTunes um, on May 28th. And for physical purchase, think DVDs or Blu-rays that you buy at Walmart or Target uh, on June 11th. Notably, it was the first Marvel film to not go to Netflix for streaming. Uh, Instead, it premiered on Disney Plus uh, for streaming when that service launched in November late last year. Um, So all in all, it took about 80 days uh, between the March 8th uh, launch date, uh, premiere date in theaters to the the, uh, May 28th uh, digital demand um, availability. And then 95 days for physical purchase, um, which again was on June 11th. And it took almost 250 days until it was available for streaming, though that may have been a situation with Disney Plus launching on a specific date. Um, The important number here to look at is that 81-day window between the movie premiering in theaters and becoming available for digital purchase or release. This is what is known as a theatrical window. Essentially, it is a period of of exclusivity, exclusivity that exhibitors have to sell a film and make money. There's a lot here um, in this episode already, but as a rule, um, movie theaters will make about 50% of total ticket sales of a movie over a lifetime. There are specific splits between the movie theater and the distributor, um, which we can get to in another episode. However, we'll just say 50%. Um, So this 50% of total box office that goes to the exhibitor combined with whatever they make on popcorn and soda and candy, um, which for them is, you know, 85% margin. Um, that's where most of um, the exhibitors, AMC, Regal, and and, and so on, um, make all their money. Um, historically, the theatrical window used to be much longer, about six months or so, actually, between um, release and then uh, between premiering in theaters and home release. Um, however, with the rise of digital downloads, the decrease of sales of DVDs, um, and, and the like, um, distributors have been pushing it to be shorter and shorter, you know, trying to get to a 75 to 90 day window that we see currently. Um, so obviously it makes sense why movie theater chains want to keep the theatrical window as long as open as possible. They make more money off of popcorn, the more people go see the movie in theaters, plus, you know, they still get more money from the actual ticket sales. They don't see anything from the home video release. But what about a distributor? What's in it for them to keep this theatrical window? Why aren't they even pushing even further to push it down to as short as possible um, between the movie release and the uh, home release? Um, why don't they skip the middleman and put everything on digital release immediately? To answer that question, let's talk about some numbers about digital distribution market and home media in general. Um, so according to the Digital Entertainment Group, uh, for 2019, uh, the industry made $5.9 billion in physical purchases, $2.6 billion in digital purchases, $3.4 billion in rentals, and that includes both physical as well as uh, digital rent, uh, purchase, uh, rentals. Um, so that holds $11.9, call it $12 billion for home entertainment outside of streaming. Streaming's a whole other monster. Um, um, and again, you know, $12 billion, 5.9 of that is physical purchase, so about half of that is physical. Um, however, this also represents home entertainment media for all properties. Not just movies that came out in 2019, movies from across time that, you know, someone picked up an old Jurassic Park DVD that someone was selling somewhere, um, as well as, you know, TV shows in addition to movies. Um, So in comparison to that $11.9 billion, 
the domestic box office, and again, this is only domestic, doesn't include anything international, was $11.4 billion. So really, you know, the home media market is, you know, maybe a little bit bigger than the box office. But again, you have to, again, consider that that home media is spread among old releases getting sold now, as well as other entertainment properties such as television shows uh, on top of the newest releases in movies. Um, So, you know, the distributor is making at least half, if not more than half, of total revenue from box office receipts, not from the home media sales. Now, this will vary by film, of course. Some films, you know, become cult classics because they do exceptionally well on streaming. Maybe they're the kind of film that, you know, someone wouldn't go to pay money to see in the movie theater. I think the average American sees four movies in theaters in a given year. You know, I'm not one of those, clearly, but, um, you know, Maybe that might be maybe that might be a case where some people will choose to watch a movie, uh, you know, at home instead of going to theaters. But the point stands that you know, as an industry, the uh, distributors are still incentivized to keep movies in theaters because they have that much. Plus, it's also more likely that the film will have a great life uh, on streaming and home physical media if it performed well at the box office in the first place. That can be used as a leverage tool in negotiations for those rights. Um, you know, if it wants to come to streaming eventually, um, if it did exceptionally well at the box office, you know, um, Sony or Paramount or Universal or Universal or Warner can negotiate with Netflix and say, "Look, this movie that made you know fifty million at the box office, so we'll give it to you for this much, you know, license for streaming." You know, I don't know what the actual numbers are. Let's just say, like, you know, uh, fifty million dollars, you know, streaming licensing rights. But this one made, you know, two hundred million at the domestic box office. No, we're definitely going to want to chart you to have you pay us more than just fifty million for this. So having a strong box office can correlate on the back end, which numbers we're never going to actually see because these are all, you know, hush hush, not not made public. Um, these kind of numbers can be influenced um, by having a strong box office performance. And this, again, doesn't even take into potential the revenue from licensing for distribution internationally on home release and media as well. So um, a strong box office is still important for um, distributors and a strong box office um, kind of necessitates having a strong uh, box office, uh, a strong uh, theatrical window. Um, so as an illustration for this, using some real numbers, uh, Captain Marvel made $426 million domestically and $1.1 billion worldwide at the box office. Again, it also made $151 million on its opening weekend in the U.S. Um, to date, it's only made $66 million on physical home media sales. Um, and this is DVDs and Blu-rays. We don't have the numbers right now for, um, you know, digital purchases on Amazon Prime or uh, YouTube movies, you know, those aren't really made public that often. But if we go with the assumption that, you know, you're making 50% um, of your home media sales of both uh, physical release and streaming, um, not streaming, and digital purchase, you know, rental or or purchasing online, if 50-50, you know, call that another 66 million. Um, that's a total distribution of $132 million domestically. Obviously, still international numbers. Um, Captain Marvel made three times as much money at the box office in North America versus home media sales. And in fact, Captain Marvel made more in its opening weekend than it made lifetimes in domestic home video sales. So, you know, this is a case where Disney clearly wouldn't have wanted to cut off the legs short on how much money, uh, how much money Captain Marvel would have made, especially if you know once it comes onto streaming um, and video demand, as um, you're not going to really see as much on the box office. So you don't want to cut off those legs. 
So the question comes when the question comes up of whether Black Widow or Mulan will come to streaming while we're all in quarantine. Um, I can't really see a world in which Disney decides to put it out there without a theatrical release, which is why they've delayed the film, not just said they're going to put it live. Um, not saying it's impossible, just I see very unlikely. Uh, even if there's somehow, you know, the increase that maybe people, because they hadn't seen it before, will be more likely to purchase it and actually pay out to rent it, um, it doesn't. I don't think it would increase at a scale to replace the potential lost box office revenue. If you pay, you know, ten dollars per person for a movie ticket, um, if you go in a family of four to see Mulan, then that's forty dollars. Versus, you know, you could pay twenty dollars for a forty-eight hour rental with any number of people in your living room. Um, you know, Disney's losing half of that revenue. And yeah, so maybe you have a huge number of people who do go and increase. But I don't think that's, you know, that's not going to be a case where people are going to make up the money they would have made at the box office. And again, that doesn't help with regard to um, international numbers as well, especially you know in some countries where piracy is a very strong, big problem. If it becomes available for this release, you know it's going to become available somewhere online in the torrent somewhere. Um, that's a whole other episode on the actual effects of piracy um, on box office revenue, which I do not have the numbers on, so I'm not going to comment on that right now. Now, we do see the case that Onward, the Pixar film, did get released uh, to digital purchase and rental in only 14 days. You know, it released on March 6th and released March 20th on digital release. However, the big difference between Onward and Mulan or Black Widow is that Onward already had its theatrical release. In fact, from that list of films I discussed at the start of the episode, only one, Trolls World Tour, has not yet already been released in theaters. All of the others have premiered already. Uh, some were unfortunate and released March 13th and had a very, very low box office uh, opening. Uh, but it's highly unlikely that whenever coronavirus ends and whenever exhibitors open up again, that they're going to bring back Bloodshot or The Hunt, uh, you know, for this you know opening the reopening weekend. Um, they're going to do whatever has been delayed uh, to that point, basically. Um, Plus, I don't think the distributors are going to want to spend, re-spend the money on advertising for that re-release. Um, uh, so, you know, that that's the case where if it's already been in theaters, it's already had its chance. Um, you know, given that they made as much as they're going to make from the cinema at this point, uh, it makes sense for the distributors, most notably Universal, actually. Uh, they've chosen to rush them out the whole media. And since the normal circumstances for a theatrical window uh, staying uh, staying open for three months. I don't think that really applies here. So I don't think the exhibitors are particularly upset. Um, some are grumbling, but I don't think they're particularly upset. And they're kind of understanding that, you know, they weren't. They're not going to. It's not like they're going to be missing out on any money that would have been made because the theatrical window got cut short. Um, now I am particularly interested in Trolls World Tour. Essentially, having a theatrical window of zero since they're opting release on digital purchase instead of just pushing it back. Um, I can only speculate here, but I imagine between not wanting to respend on advertising for a new release date, plus the soundtrack already having been released for the movie, and this is the kind of movie where the soundtrack is kind of really crucial to the film. Um, you know, I, I think DreamWorks probably made the call that. You know, they just they just make more releasing it now versus delaying the release. And given we talked about a couple episodes ago about how there are only specific windows in which animated films can do really strongly in, and the rest of the year kind of seems locked down for what films are going to be, you know, animated films are going to be in which windows. Uh, I don't think it was worth for them to delay the film, you know, multiple times and trying to compete against uh, one of the juggernauts like so, like Pixar's Soul or Illumination's Minions 2. Um, again, this is all speculation on my part. 
So what about coming to streaming? After all, The Lovebirds did get picked up by Netflix, and Onwards is coming April 3rd to Disney+. Why can't Black Widow and Mulan join Onward there? Um, one important thing to note, and I think this is kind of a terminology thing, is people kind of interchangeably use streaming and video on demand and digital purchase and rental. Um, video on demand, in box office terms um, and analysis, usually refers to when a service is a when a video is av- available on a service like Amazon Prime or YouTube Movies, where you have to still pay money to access the film. I have to pay $4 to rent from Amazon. I think some of the Universal films are being rentable for $20 for a two-day period um, or buying it outright. You know, some places, I think on Amazon, you know, some of the films I watched recently have been $10 to just outright own the film. Um, You know, distributors will still make money from when it's available on rentals. Now, streaming, on the other hand, is when you go to Netflix or Hulu um, or, you know, in Disney's places, they put their own stuff on Disney Plus um, and everyone's going to have a streaming service, you know, of their own at some point, HBO Max, CBS All Access and so on and so forth. Um, you know, all of those are licensed. So if it's not owned and operated by the same distributor, you know, Disney owning Disney Plus, if it's going to a third party like Netflix, yes, Netflix is paying a streaming licensing fee to the distributor and they're making money that way. Um, But if it's someone like, you know, Disney who owns Black Widow, who owns Mulan and who owns Onward and they're putting it onto their own system, their main metric is will it drive additional, you know, subscriptions at that point? Um, And frankly, Disney has kind of said that they're already at 50% market penetration of households with children. That, again, one in two households with kids have Disney Plus already. So I don't think there's going to be a marginal increase in the amount of new subscriptions for Disney Plus um, for people who didn't already have um, it. Just if they wanted to, if you want to see Mulan or Black Widow on Disney Plus, you will probably already have Disney Plus at this point. Um, so, you know, Disney would, if Disney isn't going to put it out at least on rental first, like they're doing with Onward, right? They're putting it, they're putting Onward out first on rental, get whatever money they can from, from the immediate purchase of people who can't wait. And then they'll eventually put it on Disney plus, um, you know, to make it available. Um, if they aren't going to do that with Mulan or, uh, Black Widow, putting it on rental first before putting it on streaming, um, then they're not going to put it on streaming without putting it on the rental. So, and we already know that the financial incentive is there for them to keep putting it in theaters before putting it on that uh, digital platform. Um, now, with Lovebirds, what's at work here is that it's likely that it has a relatively cheap budget. So, you know, I can't find the budget online anywhere. But as a comparable, Kumail Nanjiani had a similar action comedy film last year called Stuber uh, with Dave Bautista. Uh, it had a budget of $60 million and made $32 million worldwide. Um, so I'm guessing that Netflix came to Paramount and offered them a number, you know, call it $20 million or something, uh, that, you know, allows Paramount to at least break even on their budget investment uh, for Lovebirds. Um, you know, last year's rom-com, uh, Success Always by Maybe with Ali Wong and Randall Park. Uh, that was released on Netflix and had a budget of $19 million. So that's totally within the realm of Netflix's budget to be able to do that kind of thing for this relatively smaller film. Um, if there was a film I actually would expect to go direct to streaming at this point, I would expect it to probably be A Quiet Place 2, actually. That was made on the, the first one was made on a budget of $17 million. Um, so, you know, I could see John Krasinski um, and his production company choosing to, you know, say, okay, we'll just put it on streaming if you give us the right, you know, uh, streaming fee. Now, that said, 
they the the distributor may decide hey we really do think there's potential here to actually see it in theaters and get a lot of you know have a great you know performance maybe they can again use a strong box office number to leverage uh a better streaming uh negotiation later on so that might be a case a quiet place could go either way at this point uh, speaking of Netflix, with all this conversation, uh, the reason you don't ever see any Netflix originals airing in big movie chains and only at small local art house theaters is that AMC, Cinemark, and Regal have chosen to base functionally blacklist Netflix films from sewing in theaters because Netflix refuses to uh, honor the theatrical window of at least three months. Um, obviously, it's a Netflix business to prioritize streaming and getting stuff on streaming as soon as possible. Um, so, you know, that's why, that's why you know, they've chosen to just ignore the theatrical windows whenever they do, you know, put something in theaters, usually for awards contention. Um, that's why, for example, you didn't see any of their films uh, in the best, best picture showcases that the major exhibitors did earlier this year for the Oscars, even though Marriage Story and The Irishman, you know, did have best picture nominations. Um, they're just black, Netflix is just blacklisted because they don't honor the theatrical window. Uh, one last note, some people are wondering why New Mutants isn't being released to streaming, especially since it's been delayed over and over. It was literally supposed to come out April 2018 at this point. Um, so, you know, what's at play here is likely that because it was a Fox property before the Disney acquisition, um, it's likely that it's covered by the streaming arrangement that Fox and HBO had to stream Fox properties until 2022. Um, so Disney really has no incentive to push it to streaming because if they did push it to streaming or this is the release, um, that money is going to go to HBO and it's not going to go to Disney. Um, so, you know, kind of, that's kind of, I think with the insistence that Disney keep new mutants in theaters, at least until 2022, maybe they end up getting delayed another two years, uh, which is kind of ridiculous at this point, to be quite frank. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm best. That's why Disney hasn't done that yet. Um, I also imagine this is the case uh, with my spy. Well, specifically, I imagine that this is the case that uh, sometimes when people are making films, there's a stipulation in the contract between the producer and the distributor that there be a theatrical release, that there is a legal contract in place that the distributor has to get it in theaters and they can't just dump it on a streaming platform if they think it's not going to perform well. Um, I don't know why that that those those clauses are in there. Um, maybe the artistic vision demands it be seen in theaters. Um, in any case, you know that might be an explanation why films like you know New Mutants or My Spy have not just been put onto a streaming or video on demand platform at this point. In any case, I hope that this discussion of the theatrical window has been helpful in understanding about why it's important for both exhibitors and distributors uh, that. A movie premieres in theater first, and it has that exclusive window of at least three months. And honestly, that's probably the best explanation for why we will not see Black Widow or Mulan on streaming or digital purchase anytime soon. So, normally this is the part of the show where we go over the top five movies in theaters. Obviously, there aren't any movies in theaters at this point, but I can talk about some of the movies I have been watching on my own. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I have another podcast about movies called Filmography and Focus, where each month I watch all of the films of one director or a franchise and put together an audio essay discussing the common motifs and techniques uh, throughout their body of work. Uh, for this month's episodes, I've been watching the films of Korean director Bong Joon-ho, uh, who won Best Picture, Best Director for Parasite uh, this year. Um, this past weekend, I watched one of his films, Mother, um, and also his debut film, uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite. Um, 
barking dogs never bite you can definitely tell this is early from your film um you know and don't watch it if you have kind of any sensitivity to animal cruelty mother was definitely a very interesting take i can kind of see his journey uh to where he ended up with parasite i'm not going to say much more if you want to hear more my more of my thoughts on these movies Definitely check out Filmography and Focus. Um, the only one I have left to watch this week uh, is Memories of Murder. Um, so hopefully I'll probably watch that tonight or tomorrow. Uh, the episode of Filmography and Focus comes out uh, this Friday. So if you're not already subscribed, um, definitely check out check it out. I'll include the link in my show notes uh, so you can hear me talk about Bong Joon-ho. Uh, in any case, that wraps up this week's watch. Uh, if you have any feedback or suggestions for box office concepts to cover, send me an email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zamo.com or go on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play as well. Uh, if you could, please leave a review on your podcast service of choice or on Podchaser. That would be super helpful. I'll include links for all of these in the show notes. Uh, numbers uh, used in the show come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music comes from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch, and our watch goes on. See you guys. <laughs>